All right, we're going to continue on. Sorry to break up. Good conversation as always. Please bookmark that and continue after the service. We would love for you to stick around and talk as much as you would like. I want to just say hello to you once again. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If I don't know you um, and you're guest with us, um, welcome. We're honored that you would spend a Sunday morning uh, worshiping with us. And if I haven't got the chance to meet you yet uh, face-to-face, I'd love to do so. So uh, if you have time to stick around afterwards and just say hello face-to-face, I would love that. That would be great. This morning, we're starting um, a a series that is going to be here at the first... uh, five weeks or so of the, the fall semester, and it is um, about um, who we are as a church, our mission, what we're about, and so that is what we're going to look at for the next five weeks. So I think we have a slide. We have a slide there for this. Throw up there. Um, yeah, we're calling this Freedom and Joy in Jesus. Uh, Vicki Bumgarner did that slide, and a lot going on there in the slide, some imagery there, and you'll kind of pick up on that as we move through um, the series. So let me read um, one of the primary texts we're going to look at today from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul says here to the church in Corinth, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. And as we talk about um, who we are as a church, this morning I pray that it is clear that we want this to be about you and your son and your spirit. So pray as we talk about um, the gospel this morning and the kind of the the thing we center everything around, I pray that your son would be magnified, your son would be lifted up, and that we would be changed as a result of looking at your word and looking at the good news of the gospel. I pray that you would allow us to be changed in our minds when we leave here and our hearts what we feel, our affections, and how we live, what we do when we leave this place. The Spirit, come and help us this morning. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Before um, we moved back to Norman to plant uh, Providence Road 10, 11 years ago, um, I had, in ministry, I had several opportunities to live overseas and to lead uh, mission trips overseas to different places, And one of the things um, that was clear on these mission trips as people were joining this team to go overseas um, was what the the purpose was, what the mission was of this trip. And mission trips, the purpose of mission trips are to love and to serve the people that you're going to, but also praying, you're praying for opportunities to share your faith, to talk about Jesus, to see people be reconciled to God. And so there was no... Um, there was no muddiness, there was no um, lack of clarity when it came to the mission of a mission trip. And this is why people would um, <clears throat> spend money, this is why people would sacrifice more, than, more, than, more times than not comforts to go overseas, go to some really hard places, go to some really dark places. There was a sense they were 
they were based off the mission. They were counting the cost. They were clear on what this was going to be like. And it allowed us as a team to come together around this particular mission for the mission trip. And so you sacrificed sleep. <clears throat> you ate things you would never eat. You would spend time in close quarters with people that you normally weren't used to spending time in close quarters with, all for the sake of the mission. It changed the way you went about um, living life on that particular trip. You also have this happen with other um, groups and teams. You have sports teams where it's clear, you, especially in the upper levels in college and in, in professional leagues, you have um, the, the main purpose, the mission is winning. So when you join a team, if you're not about winning, you're going to have problems being unified with the rest of the team. The same with the military. You join the military, and one of the primary purposes of the military is to, to, to protect and to serve to defend our nation. So when you join in the military, that's what you're signing up for. So you're willing to go through boot camp. You're willing to go through the rigors and the disciplined lifestyle, all for the purpose of the mission. So understanding the mission of a group of people is important. And so here at Providence Road, we believe it's important for um, us to all be clear on why we're here, what we're aiming at as a church. And this, this mission statement that we have isn't, isn't new, um, but it, um, it is, I'll read it. it, it'll be up here on the screen so you're, we're clear on this. We glorify God. This is why we exist. We glorify God by leading people to find freedom and joy in Jesus. That's why we exist. That's why we're here as a church. And so you may ask, well, why, why is this, this Providence Road's mission statement? Why did you say it this way? Well, we believe that freedom and joy are two things that every human being is pursuing or is looking for in something. And we'll break this down. We'll take one. We'll take freedom, right? Well, first I will say we exist to glorify God. We believe that all human beings, the purpose of every human being is to glorify God. God created us as human beings to reflect him, to image him to the world so that he might receive glory. This is like the foundation of why we exist. Now, how does that get worked out in a church or in a Christian's life? We believe that that gets worked out uh, best when people are finding freedom and joy in God's son, Jesus. Because if you are finding your freedom and joy in Jesus, you are going to make him look good to the world. And when you make Jesus look good to the world, you make God look good to the world. And this is what it means to glorify and to honor God. So let's look at freedom. Okay, this idea of freedom. Freedom, it's very straightforward, right? What you're thinking and what you come to mind when you think of freedom, that's, that's what it is, right? It's free from enslavement to something. And for followers of Jesus, it's free from our enslavement to sin, the flesh, the things the world kind of puts in front of us that are contrary to the way of Jesus. And we're all going to be enslaved to something. The Bible uses this term of, of yoke, right? This thing you put over an oxen in, 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 in old school agriculture, right? Like we're going to be yoked to something just by nature of being human beings. And Jesus invites us into a relationship where he says in Matthew 11, I'm gentle and lonely. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So put, put my yoke upon you and you'll experience freedom. True freedom is found in Jesus. So we believe that people are pursuing freedom. We, we all want freedom. 
Um, and, and, but we're all maybe looking for that in different places. But as Christians, we're to find that in Jesus. Listen to Galatians 5.1. Paul, talking in the middle of teaching on the gospel to the church in Galatia, says this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, really in the gospel, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And the yoke of slavery that Paul was talking about in this particular instance was the yoke of, of legalism. They were, the church in Galatia had a problem with they were putting themselves back under the law, and Paul is coming in preaching the gospel of freedom here. Let's look at this other, this next word. You can go back to the, to the mission statement. Um, the next word here is joy, right? Joy. This is the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? Um, and you can also use happiness or pleasure um, in, in, to substitute with joy. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist here is telling us that in God's presence, at his right hand, are pleasures forevermore. There's a fullness of joy in the presence of God. Not just that whatever container we have to, to fill joy in, it, it's full. It's, it's, in a sense, overflowing. There's no, more, there's no more room left to put in any more joy when we are in God's presence. We've used this quote several times here, but it's from a guy named by the name of Blaise Pascal. He was a French mathematician, philosopher, just really smart, smart dude who lived in the 1600s. And he says this about humans all pursuing happiness. Listen to this quote carefully. All men seek happiness, or all human beings. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. He's talking about happiness still. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. And what Pascal is saying there, that if you dig deep enough, all of your actions, your choices, your decisions, if you follow the questioning deep enough, you ask the why did I do this, and then why, and why, and why, and why. Eventually, you're going to end up with, I thought it would make me happy. I thought it would give me pleasure. I thought it would give me joy. Whether that's right or wrong in the moment, your wisdom in that decision Ultimately, what, you, what we are feeling as human beings is we think in that moment that decision is going to make us happy. It's going to bring us, bring us pleasure, going to bring us joy. This is what Pascal is saying here. We believe that all humans, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, a churchgoer or a non-churchgoer, you are chasing after joy in something. It's like a magnet. We are pursuing joy in something, and we believe we want to lead and create an environment where people can truly find freedom and joy in Jesus above anything else the world has to offer. So that's our mission. That's why we're here as a church. Now, as a church, the next question we ask is, well, how are we going to get there, right? That's kind of, that's, that's big picture, kind of 50,000 feet view in the sky, you know? So how are we going to do that? Well, we've identified five things that we want to be about, that we want to focus on, not, not to the detriment of all other things, but we want to prioritize these five things in the church. We feel like if we do that, then we're going to give ourselves a really good chance of leading people to find freedom and joy in Jesus. 
gospel-centered, community, discipleship, missional living, and planting healthy churches. These are the five things. And over the next um, several weeks, we're going to walk through each of these. And today we're going to focus on the one that says is gospel-centered, the first one. And there's a reason why gospel-centered is first. And how we would describe this is that when we say gospel-centered, what we mean is that we center our lives, our individual lives, and the life of the church on the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll see that in that definition, how we've defined that, that description, there's the Bible, the word, and the gospel. We don't want to pit those two things against one another. Okay, some, sometimes it's easy to do that. Like we want, we're either, sometimes we're Bible people and sometimes we're gospel people. No, they, they go together. Like we can't understand the fullness of Jesus. We can't understand the gospel without reading God's revelation to us in his word. But we also aren't going to view and interpret the word properly unless we see the word through the lenses of the gospel, through the lenses of Jesus, the main actor in the story, the apex of The story of the scripture is the person and work of Jesus. It's where scripture is all pointing to. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to spend time looking at several passages. So looking at the word to help us understand when we say gospel, what are we meaning? Right? That word gets thrown around a lot. Gospel center this, gospel center that. Right? We want to go to the word and really see what the gospel actually is. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm really glad that you're here. And here's what I'll tell you at the front end of this. This is, this is the heart and soul of what it means to be a Christian and what the church is. So if you want to understand more about the church, want to know what is the church actually about, these next few minutes are really important. So stay connected, stay tuned, and hopefully you understand more about why Jesus is so important to us. Another thing I want you to pay attention to when we read these, read these passages is the different ways the gospel is described in different parts of the scriptures, depending on who the author is and what the context is and that they're writing into. So let's start. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. This is what we read at the beginning. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. So he's saying above everything else, this is the most important. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, this is Paul. This is New Testament, right? Well, one thing to notice here is that Paul mentions this idea of scriptures twice. And if you're in the time when the church in Corinth is reading this, there is no Bible that includes the New Testament at this day and age. There's no New Testament put together as we know it. So when he says scriptures... He's he's seeing that as the word of God, but he's probably thinking mostly about the Old Testament. So here even Paul is talking about the gospel, but he's talking about the Old Testament, as you see in the scriptures, which at this time the scriptures primarily meant the Old Testament. Just an interesting idea how Paul is going back to the Old Testament even as he is is talking about the gospel. You have Romans 1, uh, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. It's the way to salvation. It's the way to be reconciled to God. It's the way to have God's wrath removed from us through the gospel. We have Jesus here in Luke 4. 
Listen to, 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 this is Jesus saying, this is why I've come. And he's the embodiment of the gospel. Listen to this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, so this is part of the gospel, right? This is taking a, a wider angle lens view of the gospel, right? But this is why Jesus said he come. I've come to do these things. So the gospel, this comes with the gospel as well. This has kind of echoes of Sermon on the Mount language inside of that a statement from Jesus. Here's Jesus again. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So he came into Galilee preaching the gospel. And Mark sums that up in verse 15 and saying, this is what Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's arrived. Repent and believe the gospel. So here Jesus is connecting the gospel and the kingdom of God. So there's something about the kingdom of God that is important in the gospel. And sometimes we often miss that in our kind of individualistic mindsets when it comes to the gospel. So I read those to, to help you understand there's different angles to the gospel. There's one gospel, but there's many forms and many ways to talk about the gospel. Tim Keller defines the gospel um, as this, and he, he tries to kind of work all of this into that. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. Okay, so the gospel, you can see it as like, it's like a diamond, right? There's one diamond, let's just say, in your hand, but as you turn that diamond, you're seeing it differently. You're seeing different light uh, reflect off the different parts of the diamond. You see the kind of the, the different shapes of the diamond as you spin it. And there's one diamond, but there's many ways to look at that diamond that gives you a different picture. There's different angles involved. But hear me clearly, there is one gospel and the non-negotiables are, it's God's work, not our work. It's God's power, not our power. And it's the announcement of news. It's the announcement of something that's already been done. It's not uh, a list of things that are good advice. It's not a list of, of really good proverbs or wisdom statements. It's, it's an announcement about something that has already been accomplished. That is the, the, the heartbeat of the gospel that we can't lose, no matter how uh, how we describe it in these different ways. So today, for the rest of our time, we're going to focus in, in really in communicating the gospel in two different ways. And I think whatever angle you look at in the scriptures and how it uh, describes the gospel, it's going to fall into one of these two categories, okay? So first, you have the gospel in us. The gospel in us. Um, this is the, the gospel focused on the individual. Okay, the gospel focuses on the individual and, and God's power at work in us. And this way to describe the gospel is more uh, propositional. Okay, if you have done any kind of evangelism, formal evangelism, this is the way most evangelistic tracts explain the gospel. Okay, we're going to start. It's a, it's a four-part movement that starts with God. Okay, God, the holy God, creator of everything. He's holy and righteous. You see this in Exodus 15, 11, which will be on the screen. Uh, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You could pick 
hundreds of passages in the, in, the, in the Bible that describe God's holiness. And he creates man. He creates man um, sinless. But man sins. Sin comes into the world, and now uh, God and man's relationship is severed. There's a gap. There's a chasm between God and all human beings. We see this in Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. So here's the deal. God creates man, man sins. Now, man is born into sin and is separated from God. This is bad news, right? And there's no way we can possibly get back to God on our own. No amount of good behavior can do it. No amount of righteous living can do it. Do it. There is a gap between us and God. And this is not the most popular message in today's culture, right? This seems kind of regressive to say that, yeah, people can be separated from God and not know him, and if they die without knowing God, they can spend eternity apart from him in a place the Bible describes as hell, okay? This is what the Bible teaches. One theologian describes hell as a place where God has completely removed his presence to allow the sin and the evil in humans' hearts to have its full effect for all eternity, so God is just removing his presence from all of people, all of earth, and he's allowing sin to have its natural course. The Bible also describes this as a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, this is not the popular part of the gospel in our culture, but it's necessary. This is the bad news. You don't get good news without bad news. If there's no bad news, everything's just news. If you're going to have good news, it's going to be about combating the bad news. So you have God, and you have man, and sin. And the third thing is you have Jesus, Christ, our salvation. Romans 5, 8 through 9. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice what it doesn't say here. It doesn't say, yeah, we... uh, yeah, humans are really bad. They started getting good, kind of the arrow. They got the arrow pointed the right way, and then Christ died for them. No, no, no. Humans kind of got up to a certain point in their righteousness that it made them worthy to be sick. No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love that God has for his image bearers. This is important. This is at your worst, Christ died for you. It's not about cleaning yourself up and coming to Jesus. It's about believing that you are not a good person and trusting that Jesus is what makes you acceptable and right before God. It's about coming to him in humility and admitting that you need a healer, a savior. Verse 9 here says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? See, the wrath of God coming up there. Now that's the gospel, right? That's Jesus' work on our behalf. Okay? Nothing there that we did, right? That is the gospel. We got to be careful. That is the gospel right there. Now, how do we respond to the gospel? This is the fourth step. It's it's faith. So God, man, Jesus, faith or response. It's Romans 10, 8 through 13. Again, Paul says this, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. So this is Paul proclaiming the gospel. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart 
that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he's talking about believing in your heart here. There's something internally that goes on. And verse 10 gives us how it happens. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. So God changes our hearts, gives us faith, gives us desires for him. And then it says, and with, then with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So we do need to respond to the gospel. We respond in faith. We say, yes, I believe. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe in his work. But God is working on the inside in our hearts while that is going on. Verse 11 says, um, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Believes, same as similar to faith, okay? For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing on his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when God changes a person's heart, they confess with their mouth that Jesus is, is their Savior and their Lord. They are saved. A person is, that is what saves a person. God's work on the inside and the confession um, of faith on the outside. Okay? This is the gospel working in us. Okay? And this is when you think of gospel presentations or how to communicate the gospel, this is it. Right? Now, there's another angle to the gospel, and that's what we're going to go through now. The gospel through us. That was more individual. This is more of the corporate, kind of the kingdom of God angle of the gospel. This starts with creation. This is more of a, more of a narrative. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is called the creation mandate. As human beings, we're given jobs. We're giving work to do. We're, 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 giving, we're, given, um, steward, we're, we're being stewarded um, the, with creation, to work it, to create it, to cultivate it, right? And we have this relationship with God that's, that's, that's perfect. It's, in the, it's this beautiful garden. It says Adam and Eve walked with him daily. They talked with him. Can you imagine that? And a relationship with the creator God without any barriers, without any walls, without any of our junk getting in the way, that just blows my mind. I can't even imagine that. But this is the way it was. This is Genesis 1 and 2. And then you have Genesis 3. So it goes creation and then fall. And the fall is what happens when Adam and Eve sin. Sin comes into the world and it breaks everything. It fractures our relationship with God. It fractures our relationship with each other. And it fractures our relationship with the earth, with the physical creation. And then at the end of the chapter 3, um, in verse 24, this is what God does to Adam and Eve. He drove out the man and the woman, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away to guard the way to the tree of life. Because they sinned, they could no longer be in God's presence. God's presence was removed from them as they knew it. They were put out of the garden. And this was a physical image or picture of us, of, of us spiritually now. We cannot be in God's presence because the result of our sin. This relationship is fractured and broken. But then the third movement of this story is redemption. Redemption. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Uh, there's 10 verses here. Um, but I want you to just listen. This is, this is one of the best, best 10 verses in all the scripture. And you were dead in the trans, trans, trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. We're dead. Follow, spiritually. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air... The spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Now, the majority of the action and the verbs in that passage are coming from God. God is the one acting in this gospel story, in this part of it at least, in the redemption part of the gospel story. But we also have a a fourth part to this story. It doesn't stop there. We have restoration. Listen to Revelation 21. This is how it all ends. So Jesus announces his kingdom. His kingdom is coming on earth. When he comes, it's It's present, but it's not fully present. So we're living in this age now. It's kind of the already but not yet. The kingdom has arrived in some degree. Jesus has said that. But we know it hasn't arrived in fullness because this hasn't happened yet. But this is coming. Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's where we get the, the church being the bride of Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throat saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he also said, write this down, talking to John who wrote this. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... And that could be all of us apart from Jesus, right? Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And that last verse there is referring to what the Bible calls hell. This is the way it is all going to end. Everything will, God is restoring all things. He's renewing all things to himself in Jesus. Okay, so we don't want to just stop with our own individual salvation. There's a corp, something corporate going on here that's happening that we are in the middle of. Now, those are two ways to communicate and understand the gospel. Now, I want to take a few moments to talk about what the gospel is not. What the gospel is not. Um, sociologist um, Christian Smith, who is now at the University of Notre Dame, um, he's a... Uh, yeah, Christian sociologist, he did a study in, from 2001 to 2005, so it's almost 20 years old now. And he studied the, um, asked, studied the religious life of teenagers in our country. And it, he was, it was published in a book in 2005 called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Um, and what he did in this book is he asked uh, teenagers, so 
20 years ago, so those of you who are in your mid-30s now, this was you 20 years ago, teenagers, and he asked them a series of questions about life and purpose and religion and faith, and they took all of this four-year study, all of the the answers, and they tried to kind of find patterns and and kind of uh, identify and label if this was a religion, if this was a belief system, what would it be? So, and they came up with three words, the, the, the uh, Christian Smith and his team. Um, and they called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so I want to just briefly describe these three, um, these three descriptors here because I think we're all in danger at times of allowing these things to seep into what the biblical gospel actually is. Especially in a place like Norman, Oklahoma. A lot of... A lot of Bible Belt culture here. A lot of things that we just kind of take for granted and kind of these, these Christian cultural things that we think about that we don't actually ask why and kind of really dig into to kind of figure out why we say the things we do or why we believe the things we do, okay? So the first one is moralistic, moralistic. And, and what they would describe this as um, the believing that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions, in other words, good people go to heaven when they die, right? So this is a, a core tenet of, the, the, of what a, a teenager's faith would have been at this time, right? And probably what is still, in, in, in my experience, still very much a part of the, the religious fabric of our country. So moralistic, right? Um, this is what we want, they want people to be good, nice, and fair. So if you've ever heard that, that Christianity is about being a good person, it's probably this is it. Now, does God want us to be moral? Absolutely, okay? But morality is not at the heart of our faith. Us being good people is not at the core of what we believe. Jesus is at the core of what we believe. Jesus is at the heart of our faith, okay? It's not about being a good person. There's nothing, we, we've seen that in these gospel presentations, There's nothing we brought to the table. There's nothing we can offer God that causes us to be saved, okay? Here's the problem with this. Morality will will ebb and flow based off of, if this is your kind of thing, it'll ebb and flow based off of how good you've done that day or that week. If you've had a good moral week, you'll feel pretty good about yourself. You'll have some pride, maybe even some self-righteousness, patting yourself on the back. Why? Because you are the one that, that did it, right? You tried really, really hard that week and you had a good week, right? What if you had a bad week, like most of us would over the course of a week, morally-wise? You'd feel, one, you either feel depressed, you just want to quit. So you hear, I hear people say, I tried the Christianity thing, the church thing, it didn't really work. What they probably tried is this. They realized that trying to be a good person, and that's like the foundation of the faith, that's a really miserable thing. And it doesn't work very well. Um, or maybe you want to stick with it. And, you wanna, and, and there's some value benefit, you see. So you try harder. You do more. You put more effort into it. You, you try and try and try to be a better and better person. But where's the goal? Where's the, where, where, when do you cross the finish line of that? You never will. Because we can't be good enough. This is the problem with just being a good person. And a lot of the teaching that is the pop teaching out there, this, this is kind of what it is, right? This is how you be a good person. This is the, 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 the five steps to a better life. This is the seven steps to having your best life now. This is the kind of stuff that seeps in to Christianity. 
The focus is on us as human beings, and it takes the focus away from Jesus, which is unbiblical, and it's dangerous when we do that. So this is not biblical. If you think that you're a Christian because you're a good person, that is not what the Bible teaches. And if you're in here and you're not a follower of Jesus, then from the outside, if you think Christianity is about being a good person, then the Christians around you probably have have failed you in some sense. Like if we as Christians live our lives and that's our motive, it's like the, the whole role in this, the whole goal in this is being a good person, that's not very attractive. It's not very attractive to people who need Jesus. What is attractive is the freedom that comes of saying, I'm not a good person. I need a savior. I can't do this on my own. God, save me. Help me. And, and we're changed from the inside out. And then once we're changed, once God changes us and we believe the gospel, which is the heart of our faith, then we can live according to what the scripture asks us to live. Then we can be moral people. But it's not the core of our faith. The gospel comes first, and then uh, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live the life that God wants us to live. And yes, morality comes into that, honoring God, living for God, all of those things. So I wonder, and as we're talking with our, the, our friends that don't know Jesus, I wonder if we need to be a little bit more humble and talk more about Jesus being our Savior rather than us trying to be really good people around those who don't know Jesus. Okay, more, That's moralistic. Second, therapeutic. This says the central goal of life is to be happy, to feel good about oneself. Now, this is, uh, seems good, right? Like we want to be happy. We, that's, that's in our mission statement, right? Joy. We want to be more joyful. We want to be happy. And we, we all want to feel good about ourselves, right? But the problem with this is the focus is on us. Focus is on what is, how am I defining happy? How I'm defining my own identity? How am I defining how I view myself? And not letting God define that. Okay? This is why the, the self-help movement, and the, 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 especially in, in the bookstores, isn't going anywhere. Because this is, this is uh, what a lot of people are looking for. I just want to be good. I mean, I just, I just want to feel good. I just want to feel good about myself. I just want to come to church and hear a positive message. I don't want to leave church feeling like I'm, uh, feeling like I'm a bad person. I just want to be told that I'm good all the time. And again, I understand and I empathize with that feeling, but that is not going to last. How is that working, feeling like you're a good person? Again, the self-help movement is not going anywhere. Why? Because you have to have it over and over and over because it does not satisfy. Now, where do we find joy? We find it in Jesus. Jesus says, die to yourself. Deny yourself. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. The way to joy and happiness is in Jesus, and that is through denial of self. And that will bring us the kind of joy, the kind of joy that's alien to this world, the kind of joy that isn't fleeting. You don't have to have another hit on it, another hit of pleasure, another hit the next day, because it's lasting. It's living water. It satisfies. But the way to that is taking the focus off yourself and putting it on Jesus. So the gospel is not about therapy or having being therapeutic. The central goal of life is to glorify God by finding our freedom and joy in Jesus. And we trust by doing that, we are going to have joy. We are going to have happiness and pleasure the way God defines it. But that comes through hardship. It comes through suffering, the Bible tells us. Like the easiest proof of this is that the, the closest 12 disciples of Jesus, 11 of them died a martyr's death. The 12th, John, was put on an island 
basically a prison island to die a lonely old man. And you tell me that, that if those are the 12 people that the, the church and the movement was built off of, that doesn't seem like a therapeutic gospel. All these guys, I'm sure, had joy and freedom, but they found it through death, and they found it through suffering. Lastly, deism. Um, this is defined by the researchers as a, a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, and watches over human life on earth. But it's done in this passive way. So these, it's not atheism, right? I believe in God. I believe he's there. I believe he created stuff, and he's up there watching, right? But it's done in this passive way. And they also say that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. It's kind of like the, the, the God is a, a genie, right? And, and, and you have the lamp, right? And whenever you need God, you can rub that lamp and God will come because he's God. But unless you're in trouble or you need him, he's probably not super involved. Probably doesn't care a lot about what's going on in the world in, in, the, in the minute details. But Jesus says that he cares about the birds. He feeds them. The, the most insignificant kinds of birds. The flowers don't grow and look the way they do without God doing that. God is intimately involved in every detail that happens in our world, period. It's his sovereignty. It's his providence. He holds the world together, the scriptures tell us. We have a big God, one that blows this deistic stuff out of the water. He is involved in every aspect of our lives and things that happen in the world. The problem with deism is you're not going to be super connected to God. You're not going to be in the presence of God because you don't think you need him, and he's not there very often unless you really need him, right? But a God who's sovereign, a God who's involved, a God who cares about every detail of your life, knows every hair on your head, yeah, that, that's a little bit easier to get behind being in his presence, to want to be near him, to trust in him, to trust in his power and his ability to work in us and through us. So, having a correct understanding of the gospel will lead to um, the, the gospel permeating a church, permeating a group of people, and really having what I would call and what other theologians call a gospel culture. Right? A culture where the gospel is seen from, from top to bottom, from inside and out of the church. And so here, a few, we're going to really walk through really the next several weeks and, and dig into the the weeds a little bit more about what does it actually look like to have a gospel culture in some of these areas, but I want to mention a few of them uh, because the gospel should change a church. If you have a right understanding of the gospel and you truly, and, and, and it's, you're being changed by it individually and the leadership's being changed by it individually, the church should be a gospel, um, a, a place where the gospel is tangibly seen and it's felt when you're in the community. So this is what it should produce. It should produce how we speak to one another. So we're speaking to one another. It's not just giving uh, cliche wisdom or advice or kind of parroting something that we heard on, on, uh, on, a, on NPR or on a book we read. No, we can, we can tell each other and communicate the good news to one another. Like the gospel, it changes the way we speak to one another because we know the power of God relies in the gospel, not human wisdom. So when we speak to one another, we can point people back to Jesus instead of pointing people to the wisdom of the world. We should make us a humble people, the gospel, right? We should be the most humble people on earth. Because we didn't do anything to deserve any of the grace God gives us. We didn't deserve Jesus dying for us. He died for us when we were our worst, when we were rebels, when we were wicked. We don't deserve the air we breathe. We don't deserve those of us who have families. We don't deserve having families. 
We don't deserve any of that. All of those things are gracious and merciful gifts from God. So there is zero room for Christians to be prideful. We should be the most humble people, the most gentle people around. Now, we contend for truth still, but we do it with humility. We do it with gentleness. The gospel should make us a place that is a transparent place where people who are hurting and broken can come in. It's a safe place for people to wrestle with things, to to heal their hurts and their wounds. Why? Because Jesus is the great physician. He says, I don't come to call the healthy. I come to call the sick. The healthy don't need need me. If you think you're healthy, if you think you can do it on your own, if you're a, a moralistic person, if you think you're a good person, you don't need me. You don't need me. I came for the people who know they are sick. So we want to be a, a church who creates that culture. We want to be a place where the Holy Spirit's power leads to healing and hope. And we see that in the gospel. We want to be a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. So we want the community, we'll talk more about this next, the community to be formative in the way that it helps people grow in their faith. Maybe you come in beat up and busted and, and confused. But after a couple of years here, you begin to come out of that because of the people around you. A community, we want it to be a community where people um, that, that aren't like us feel welcome. People that live differently than us, look differently than us, can come in and feel welcome here. And if we, if we believe it is God who gives us our identity, not our own self-righteousness, then we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't care what people look like when they come in. We should be diverse in that way. It is God who gives us our identity and changes us from the inside out, not the outside in. And we want to be a group of people who will preach the gospel in all of life to those who don't know Jesus. Why? Because we can be the type of people who can't imagine the people on this earth living life without knowing God, without knowing Jesus, without having a relationship to the one who said, I'm gently, gentle and lowly. Come to me. My burden, is, my, my, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. Come to me. This is Jesus begging us to come to him. Do you want people around you to know the grace and love that God has for them in Jesus? And having a gospel culture breaks our heart for people who don't know the goodness of God. Not because we want them to stop doing the bad things they're doing. Not because we want them to be good people. Because we want them to know Jesus. Having a gospel culture will motivate us and move us to share the gospel with people. A right understanding of the gospel should lead to gospel culture. And you can't have a gospel culture, all those things I mentioned that we all want, right? We can't have that without a right understanding of the gospel. They go hand in hand. You have to have both. So my one takeaway this week, and we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. My one takeaway this week is know the gospel. Reflect on the gospel. Meditate on the gospel. Speak the gospel to one another. Reflect on how that, how Jesus' righteousness and the freedom and joy that he brings, how does that, ha- what does that have to do with your sin? Your, the places where you're still weak, places that maybe you still feel enslaved. How does the gospel intersect those things? Take some time this week. Please read the word, read some of these passages that I've gone over and, and, and allow the spirit to help you not just know the gospel, but to really believe the gospel with faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel, both of them. I thank you for your word that you've revealed who Jesus is in your scriptures. 
I thank you for this news that brings so much freedom that we can't do anything to save ourselves and that we're kept in relationship with you, not by our good works, but by your righteousness that isn't going anywhere. That when you look at us, you don't see us and our good works. You see the perfect record and works of Jesus. And that should bring us freedom to, to, to not live enslaved to, to, to our, our performance or enslaved to what other people think of us or enslaved to um, the, the idols of American culture and success and, and climbing the corporate ladder and having uh, beautiful families and all of these things. Please free us from the things that enslave us. And we know that's your spirit working in us to do that. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.